0: good morning everyone whenever I graduated college the only job I could find was a minimum wage position at a Christian bookstore so if you want to major in Bible that's what you have to look forward to as an entry-level position but whenever I worked there those type of stores attract all kinds of different people lots of different kinds of characters Some really interesting, um, and some really nice people, some neat people. For instance, I met Miss Alistair once. Um, But then some different kinds of characters will come in. On uh, one occasion, one gentleman came in very disturbed, all distressed, and excited all at the same time. He said, have you heard they found the lost books of the Bible? Well, I I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And he wanted to place an order and all these things, so... It was a thought for me, do we have lost books of the Bible? And the answer to that is obviously no. But in our canon of scripture, do we have books that we neglect? The answer to that is yes. We're going to be starting a uh, two-week series on a new book of the the Bible. um, This week and then two weeks from now we'll come back to it. It's only one chapter long. We often neglect it because it's not a very... Theological book, or at least it doesn't come across that way at first. It doesn't expose false teachers. It doesn't even mention the word truth. But I believe that it's an extremely useful book for each and every one of us as believers. A very useful book. Now that you've all turned to Philemon, let's go ahead and read the first seven verses. Let's read the first seven verses. Paul, a prisoner. Of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Ophia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that is in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have to the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Let's have another word of prayer. Father, we're holding in, your, in our hands your word that you've given to us. I pray that we would give attention to it. I pray that we would apply what it says. I pray you'd give us the, the strength and the power to do that. We've all hopefully learned that we don't have that strength in ourselves. If we try to do it, we will fail every time. Please forgive us of that, Lord, and please forgive us of our self-reliance and help us to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to apply your word. I pray you'd give me the courage to preach your word with accuracy, and I pray that we'd all be changed by what we hear from what you have to say to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It may come as a shock to you, but the more people that come to this church, the harder it's going to be to get along. Paul wrote this letter with one purpose in mind, forgiveness, forgiveness. It doesn't even mention the word forgiveness, but all the principles are there, the principle of forgiveness. He's writing to Philemon to appeal to him to forgive someone, someone that's wronged him. The whole letter is centered around that one theme of forgiveness. Forgiveness. So as we study this letter, we're going to see how Paul constructs his argument. It's very persuasive. How Paul appeals to Philemon to forgive someone. Many of you think that our country is falling apart. It's not true. They're actually uniting. They're uniting around an evil agenda. You see it every day on the news. They're coming together. They're coming together over all kinds of evil things. If our church is not united in the gospel, if our church is not united in our relationships, if we cannot get along here as a body of believers, the bloodthirsty world outside that's uniting right now, they're going to come and tear us apart. We have to be ready. Forgiveness is going to be the foundation of that and our workings together as families and as friends here at a church, at this church. Satan would have our families torn apart he would have our friendships torn apart at this church. Any kind of gospel relationships where the gospel is going forward, he's going to tear that apart or at least try to tear that apart. We have to be ready. And this book is an extremely practical way to remind us and to show us how to forgive each other and our relationships with each other. Philemon, it's a very important book. So what I would have for you today is not the main point of the letter. We have to set the stage. Next time we will get to the main point of Paul's letter, but we're going to see how he prepares for forgiveness. We're going to see how he makes his preparations, how he lays the groundwork for his main appeal. Does that make sense? We're going to see what he says before he makes his ultimate appeal to Philemon. And he does that in two stages. He does that by sending the greetings to Philemon and his friends. That's the message today, Philemon and friends. And he does it secondly by providing a prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon particularly. So those two stages, by giving the greeting, to Philemon and his friends and the whole church in his house, and then more specifically, a prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon himself. And as we go through those two sections, we're going to ask two questions. Okay? We're going to ask two questions of each section. We're going to see what kind of lessons we can learn from those people, what kind of lessons we can learn from their character. And then secondly, we're going to see what the rhetorical punch is of what Paul has just said. When I say rhetorical punch, here's what I mean. Okay, you have, you know, you have politicians and people who talk on, on, in the media, right? And people say, oh, that's just empty rhetoric. Have you heard that kind of statement before? That's ah, just rhetoric. That's not what Paul's here doing here. He's making a very powerful, persuasive argument that actually has substance and meaning. It's not just wind, okay? So it's a very rhetorical letter here, very powerful, very persuasive. There's a rhetorical punch to everything he says. So that's what we'll ask for each of those sections. So first, let's look at the first three verses. We'll see the character of Philemon's friends. The character of Philemon's friends. So again, we'll ask our first question. What lessons can we learn from the character of Philemon's friends? Let's take a look. We'll see the uh, people who are sending the letter, people who are reading the letter. Look first at Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So right off the bat, the lesson we learn is that we should be concerned about others despite our circumstances. Be concerned about others no matter what's going on in our own lives, well, no matter what difficulties are happening. Paul is actually a literal prisoner here. It's not just a figurative, oh, I feel confined, but this is, he's literally imprisoned. It's a, probably a reference to his first, they say, first Roman imprisonment. And that's recorded at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. So he's likely writing this from Rome around 60 AD. So here he is. He's imprisoned. He's a prisoner for his uh, for his work at, in gospel work. He's in prison for what he's been doing. So you'll notice right from the beginning that Paul is an unselfish man. He's an unselfish man. He's concerned about others. He could be thinking about his own difficulty. He could be thinking about his own confined but but he's not he's thinking about others he's thinking about restoring relationships between other people how many of us consider others whenever we're sick or we're injured or we're we're displaced or something bad has gone on we're most of the time thinking about ourselves and nothing else we're not thinking about oh how can i see these other people restored in their relationship uh, for the sake of the gospel So the lesson we learn from Paul is that we should be concerned about others despite our circumstances. And you also see Timothy, the brother. Timothy, the brother. From him we learn that we should strive to be a reliable gospel worker. A reliable gospel worker. Ancient letters would often mention co-senders. No, Timothy didn't write this epistle, but he was a co-sender, and often those types of people would help authenticate the message and say, hey, I have got something else who knows about what's happening here, and he's standing with me un- with this message, and I'm sending it with his authority too. So that's what Timothy was doing. But Timothy was Paul's closest, I would argue, his closest worker in the gospel. He was always there. He was always reliable. Paul did have to correct him at a couple times where he'd be timid maybe, but ultimately he was there. He was reliable. He was the kind of faithful man who could entrust the message of the gospel to so that he could entrust the message of the gospel to other faithful men, Timothy was a reliable worker. Timothy also saw Paul's struggles firsthand. If you were to hang out with Paul, and Paul's like, "Hey, you know, join my ministry program. You know, kind of, you know, adopt my pattern of ministry," how many disciples would want to go with that? They would say, "Well, you know, this other guy, he's got a little bit. You know, he's a little better situation. He's not in prison all the time. Um, I'm gonna hang out with him. Maybe we learn from him." He was a reliable worker. He stood with Paul. He didn't duck and run. We need to be the same way. We need to be reliable gospel workers, people that others can count on to get the job done. Let's say, wow, I asked that guy to do something. I'm not sure, he's gonna, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to do it or not, but no, we don't want to be that way. We want to be reliable and do it for the sake of the gospel. Third lesson. This might come as a surprise. Aphia, our sister. Aphia, our sister, no doubt she's part of the cistern. Women, this is a lesson, women play a vital role in the work of the ministry. Women play a vital role in the work of the gospel ministry in the church. Some people think that Aphia was Philemon's wife. doesn't say that, though. We don't really know. But she was at least heavily involved in the Colossian church. And she's not the only lady who was involved in local churches at the time. Lots of ladies were. I know ladies today can get the idea, well, the New Testament... Forgive, bids me to preach and tells me not to exercise leadership in the church. Therefore, I'm going to do nothing. That's not the picture that the New Testament gives. That's not the picture the New Testament gives. Yes, ladies are not called to preach and lead in the church, but that's about the only thing. <laughs> that's about the only thing. Everything else, they're doing tons of stuff in the first century. Tabitha or Dorcas was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she did continually. Acts nine. Lydia's conversion in Acts 16 led to the conversion of her family and eventually the beginning of the Philippian church. Phoebe was a servant of the church in Sincreia, Romans 16. Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they risked their lives for Paul. Aquila and Priscilla also took Barnabas aside to explain the way of God more accurately to him. The wives of deacons helped their, their deacon husbands in their ministries. 1 Timothy 3. Yes, Paul had to correct something Iodia and Syntyche were doing in Philippians 4, but ultimately he says that they had shared in Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. They were working with Paul. and Titus 2, you have older women supposed to train younger women for their two greatest challenges in lives. Ready? Loving their children, and the second greatest challenge, or probably the greatest challenge, loving their husbands. So you see ladies are fully participating in the work of the church. And Ephia was doing the same things. So that's the lesson we learned from her. Next we see Archippus, our fellow soldier. We learned an interesting lesson from him that even gospel workers, even faithful gospel workers needed to be encouraged to fulfill their ministries. Gospel workers need to be encouraged to keep on going. Archippus, our fellow soldier, speaks of him in a very positive light here. He is someone who is fighting along with Paul for the sake of the gospel and the gospel ministry. But we read earlier in Colossians 4 that, hey, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So he still needed those reminders. He still needed those reminders. Colossians and Philemon were probably written about the same time and were probably delivered about the same time by a guy named Tychicus. Say that three times fast. And then someone else who we'll mention later. But Paul's letter to Philemon reveals that Archippus was a faithful soldier in the work of the gospel. But he's still called to take heed to the ministry he's been given and be encouraged to keep on going. We need that same encouragement and whatever jobs that we have that we've been given for gospel work. We need the same encouragement. So that's the other lesson. Another lesson in verse 2. And to the church in your house. For many of you it might go without saying, but the church is not a building. It is a body of believers. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. Now, you might know that, but the kids growing up in our church, do they know that? Because our kid, even my kids, they'll say, oh, we're going to church, which I understand that. Oh, you're going to go to the church today, or we're going to go to Grandma Sandy's church. You know, so they, they, they still have a hard time understanding what it's all about. So we need to be training our kids in those ways, too, that the church is not a building. It's a body of believers. And again, we all say we know that, but I've seen... Several visitors come in, they look around, ooh, this is kind (laughs) of weird, a little different, and then I've seen people leave or walk out or feel very uncomfortable and then they never come back. But the the church truly is not a building, it's a body of believers, it's a body of believers. The New Testament doesn't prescribe any certain place to meet, and that's the beauty of it because it's about people, it's not about the things, it's about the people and the relationships. Okay, have I forgotten anybody yet? Philemon, but we'll wait. We'll, we'll talk about him in a moment. But the next lesson, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a statement we take for granted. We've heard it 13 times at least in all of Paul's epistles. We hear it over and over again. Grace to you and peace. But this is a lesson for us to ground everything we say and do in the gospel. Everything we say and do, ground it in the gospel. Why would Paul mention this at the beginning of every letter? Except to say, hey, this, we're all about the gospel. We're grounding what we say and do in the message of God's grace for us, the means of salvation. We were saved by grace through faith. And what does it bring? It brings peace. Just like that new song we sing, which I love, where we were once enemies, but now we're seated at his table. There's true peace there. Our situation might be difficult. We might be in prison. But there's peace that the gospel brings. So we ground everything we say and do in the gospel. We don't just say, hey, forgive that person. But we're saying, do it for the sake of the gospel. So those are the lessons we can learn from the character of Philemon's friends. Now, what's the rhetorical punch of this, uh, the first three verses? What's the rhetorical punch? Why is this a powerful part of the argument? Why is this persuasive? Okay, I know, I know Pastor Mike would never ask anyone to mow his yard. I know he wouldn't do that. But say he did. Say he said, Miguel, I want Miguel to mow the yard. So he writes this letter to our church from California. It says, you know, greet everyone, but Miguel, please mow my yard. And he wants us to read this letter in the church. Now, would you feel any pressure to mow his yard? (laughs) Maybe not. But we've all said, hey, you know, hey, Miguel really needs a sacrifice for our pastor. (laughs) So there would be some type of pressure there, some type of powerful argument that, Mike has asked him to do an act of service, and we all know about it. And this is exactly what happened to Philemon. He directs this letter specifically to Philemon, but who else is mentioned? Aphia, Archippus, the church that's in your house, the whole whole group, most likely the Colossian church. So this is pretty, pretty persuasive, the way he's making this appeal so far. It's pretty persuasive. So just keep that in mind as we roll along. So that's the character of Philemon's friends. Now we'll notice the character of Philemon, the character of Philemon himself in verses 4 through 7. Does anyone have a uh, Spanish Bible, Greek New Testament? Nobody? couple. All right. Now, if you have a Spanish Bible or a Greek New Testament, you'll notice that one thing changes, one thing shifts. In English, if I say you, I could be referring to just one of you, right? Or... Everyone, collectively, correct? Greek and Spanish and other languages that I don't know, they distinguish between the singular you or the plural you. And that's what happens here. He has been speaking in the plural to you know, grace to you, everybody, the church. But now he's saying you, Philemon, specifically. You see that, Jenny? Cool. So you can, you can take it up with her. So he's, this is why this is such a personal letter, such a personal letter, because all, the other, all of Apostle Paul's other letters have been directed to the whole church. This one he's zeroing in on one guy, one guy. And this is, this is another reason why it's persuasive. And another thing that changes is that Paul starts to pray. Paul starts to pray for Philemon. He's making his prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon's character, for Philemon's spiritual character. So just like the last section, we're going to ask the two questions now. What can we learn from Philemon's character? And then what's the rhetorical punch of this prayer for for Philemon? Those are the two questions we're going to ask. So the first question, what lessons can we learn from Philemon's character and the nature of Paul's prayer? What lessons can we learn? Which, by the way, have you ever studied Paul's prayers? Have you ever realized that Paul does pray in his epistles? That's a fascinating study to do. Uh, There's a whole book written on it if you wanted to read about it, studying how Paul prays for for believers. It's a fascinating study. And this is what he's doing here. He's saying, I'm going to pray for you now, Philemon. This is how I pray for you on a routine basis. And there's the first lesson we learn from this. We should give thanks for the spiritual maturity of other believers. That might sound like it goes without saying, but do we do that? Do we give thanks when we see other believers who are maturing in their faith? Do we give thanks for those kind of things? What do we give thanks for? Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So he's offering thanksgiving because of what he's heard in Philemon. He's giving thanks for his spiritual growth. So what do we give thanks for? Do we get jealous whenever we hear about other people being promoted? Say, wow, that guy is a godly person. And do we get jealous over that? Just think about it deep in your heart. Do you get jealous whenever you hear about someone else who's growing? Say, well, I'm not really growing. Or why, are, why is that guy getting promoted? Why is everyone saying that he's godly? You know, And you get this sense of jealousy. It's perverse, but we do it. We have to avoid that. We should exchange that and say, wow, this guy's growing. I'm going to give thanks to God for that. Because this is what the gospel is all about. It's all about changing lives, becoming more like Christ. And whenever I see that happening, whether it's in me or anybody else, I should give thanks to God for that. It's a very important point. So, number two, what other lesson can we learn from this prayer and Philemon's character? Verse five again, make love the overriding principle in your dealings with people. Make love your overriding principle. In your dealings with people. It says because of here of your love. And of the faith that you have toward all the saints. Or toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So particularly your love toward all the saints. We read it earlier. But turn back to Colossians chapter 1. And you'll see a parallel. Colossians 1. Starting verse 3. You see a very similar prayer. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. In Colossians 1 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So if you were to divide this in two parts, he's talking about his faith that he has in Christ and his love that he has for the saints. So He's splitting it in two. Now in Philemon, it's the same exact concept, but he, he groups it all together. But just for our understanding as we read it, he's talking about his love that he has for the saints. And this has been Philemon's overriding principle up to this point. Love for the saints. I was chatting with uh, someone from the church recently about our interactions with other believers. Whenever you do something for someone, are you expecting something in return? Or is love the overriding principle? Or do you have this sense in your mind, like, oh, that guy did something for me, so I need to go match it, so that way I can feel comfortable in my conscience. You know, you get this this scale. you, You write this Excel spreadsheet in your mind of all of these things that you need to make up for, or you say, wow, I've done so many things for that guy, therefore he owes me a lot. It's not like that. Philemon wasn't like that, and Paul's thinking God that he's not like that. It's overriding principle is love. And you've seen the opposite in the world. People at your work, people who do things for you, you know they're just out there just to do it, you know, get something for themselves out of it. You say, wow, that guy was, that was nice, but eventually you see the lie behind it. But how, how does Pastor Mike always define love for us? How does he define it? Unconditional commitment, evidenced by sacrifice. We need to make that our overriding principle as we deal with each other. Not this tally system where we have, okay, I have these many points, you have that many points. It's not like that. It It removes all of that debt, our love for each other. He had this love for the saints. So the question now we have for us, is that your principle when you deal with other people? And do you have enough of this that someone could write a letter about you and report about how much love you have for the church. Could someone do that? Paul could do it for a lot of believers in the first century, he did it for the Romans, said, you know, what is happening, and you guys have been reported all over the place in Romans 1.8. Make love that overriding principle. Third lesson from Philemon, verse 5 again. Be sure to root your love for others and your faith in Christ. Don't separate your love for others and your faith in Christ. Don't separate those two. That's why Paul has it all grouped together here, because he wants us to keep these two things together, our love for others and our faith in Christ. Ephesians 6.23 mentions this idea of love with faith. And Galatians 5.6 has your faith working through love. So these things are connected. We're rooting these together. We're not just saying, okay, I love just, it's empty, and I'm just, you know... Like, I'm not really sure what it is, but it's something rooted and grounded in your your faith in Christ. And that's why you're doing it, because you love Christ and because you're trusting him. So do those. Put them together. Verse 6, the next lesson we can learn is that biblical fellowship is way more than just hanging out together. And I know you've heard this before, but, and I'll say the Greek word because you've all heard it, koinonia. This is the word here. Your fellowship of, the fellowship of your faith. It's way more than just hanging out. Actually, it might not even be hanging out, based on what the New Testament says. Um, you have the passage next to where they're breaking bread, they're fellowshipping, giving uh, attention to the teaching of the apostles. But I think the hanging out part is the bread and the eating together. The fellowship is much more. It's much more. Yes, we need to spend time together, but it's, it's way more substantive than that. Biblical fellowship is a sacrificial partnership for the work of the gospel. It's a sacrificial partnership. See in Philemon 1.3, uh, it's a partnership where Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, Philippians, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation, the same word there, participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Again, it's not just hanging out together, but it's working together. And partnership for the gospel. It's also sacrifice. Hebrews 13, 16. Where the author says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing. And it's that same exact word again for fellowship. Koinonia. Sharing. And look at, look at what he calls. Look what the author of Hebrews calls this doing good and sharing. Look how he labels it. He calls it sacrifices. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So it's giving Partnering until it hurts. That's what a sacrifice is. Sacrifices don't feel good. When those lambs were sacrificed, did that feel good for the lamb? No, it was a bloody mess. It was a sacrifice. We also sacrifice our possessions. And this is how it's used all throughout the New Testament. This word koinonia, it's actually referring to contributions, financial contributions given to other churches. You see that in Romans 15, 26. It says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution. And it's the same exact word there, koinonia, a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So this is a sacrifice. It's a sacrificial partnership. It's also a sacrifice of your personal well-being. Sacrifice of your own well-being. Philippians 3.10. How many of us want to do this? That I may know him... And the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. It's a sacrifice of our own well-being for the sake of the gospel. This is what biblical fellowship is about. So what Paul is doing here, he's giving thanks. Because Philemon has demonstrated this type of true biblical fellowship. He's done it. And Paul's saying, thank God for this. He's opened up his home to a whole church. And given in many ways is what the implication is here. He's sacrificed. He's shown hospitality. This is what Philemon has done, and Paul, thanks, Paul gives thanks to God for it. So do we have that same kind of biblical fellowship in our lives? Or are we holding back? The next lesson we can learn from Philemon in verse 7 is that we should encourage other believers in their walk with Christ. Encourage other believers in their walk with Christ. Read verse 7. It says, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. When this word, you hear the word hearts, it's the idea of affection, the affection of the saints. The Greeks, way back then, had a really interesting way of referring to their affections. You know what word they used? Intestines same word that's used whenever judas fell in the field and his intestines gushed out As graphic as it sounds that's the same word that's how they referred also in a figurative way to their emotions and this might be too much information but many of us can experience or have experienced the reality that whenever you're stressed there's trauma in that area can i get a witness <laughs> so that that's their way of referring to the their affections their inner emotions the inner seat of their emotions. So, this is where Philemon lives up to his name. What's Philemon mean? The name Philemon it means affectionate one. And he's refreshing the saints, he's encouraging them. He's the kind of guy when you got done talking to him, you felt refreshed, you felt encouraged. You've all, you've, you all, we've all talked to the people who you get done talking to him and you feel like 10 times worse whenever you get done. You say, wow, that was, I was doing. Oh, yeah, great, now I'm doing even worse. But Paul or Philemon was the kind of guy, you, you might have be been feeling down, but you talk to him and you feel better because he's encouraged you in the gospel. He's encouraged you by his love. So or do we act that way with our, with our fellow believers? Whenever your battery's dead, your spiritual battery, that is, someone comes and recharges it. That's the idea. Do we do that for our fellow believers? So we've learned some very... Key lessons from Philemon, haven't we? Very key lessons. Excuse me. There's one thing about Philemon that you should know. One thing about Philemon that you should know. And you're not going to like it. Philemon was a slave owner. He was a slave owner. How does that make you feel? We've learned some great things about Philemon. And Paul has praised him, or praised God for him. But he's a slave owner. How does that make us feel? And this is where we'll get to next time. But before we go move on, before we stop, I want to talk a little bit about first century slavery. Because we hear the word slave, we obviously, in our context today, are thinking about everything that's happening on the news, right? Everything that's happening on social media. And whether the correct representations or even the misrepresentations of what happened in the last 200 years... But we're going to take that out of our mind for right now, or we're going to f- rewind almost 2,000 years to see what was happening back then, okay? To get a little glimpse of what it was like to be a slave in Paul's day. Which, uh, if you haven't read it, it would be good to read. Um, MacArthur's book, Slave, he talks a lot about the history about that. I know you have already read it, and a few of you are reading it right now. Um, I'd recommend also one written about 10 years before that, by a man named Murray J. Harris called Slave of Christ. And it's basically a little more in-depth look of what uh, MacArthur has done as well. They're both very good. Murray J. Harris's book didn't get very popular because it's a little bit harder to read, and he didn't give thousands of copies away across North America. MacArthur did. But. So definitely read something about that to get your mind in the first century. But here's, here's a little picture. How could someone become a slave back then? How could someone become a slave? There's several ways. You could get captured in a wartime and you could be sent as a slave. very common way was slave markets. There you were. People could choose, yeah, I want that one, that one, that one, or et cetera. You were just a product. You were just something that could be bought. Slaves were very expensive, though. Very expensive. Uh, To buy an unskilled slave, it was 500 to 600 denarii. A denarius was a daily wage back then. So very, very pricey for a skilled slave. Someone maybe who could have been a tutor for your children, or even doctors, things like that. Someone who highly skilled in work that would have been up to two thousand denarii. So these were not cheap; slaves were not cheap to purchase. But they were bought on slave markets. You could also sell yourself into slavery. There's testimonies of people selling themselves into slavery for whatever reasons. Maybe they are at the end of their rope, or maybe even in some cases they were helping other people. But they were selling them slave, selling themselves into slavery. If you lost a legal battle, court sentences, you could be thrown into slavery. Um, another horrific way you could be sent, you could be uh, trapped as a slave is from birth. Exposure. Back then, they had this practice of if you didn't want a baby, they had the same called you would expose it or cast it out. I mean, you left it outside if you didn't want the baby. There's actually Uh, first century BC letter this gentleman writing to his wife back home he was on a trip and this is this is a real letter between husband and wife first century BC he says you know I I miss you etc I'm gonna you know be home soon Um, I know you're pregnant when the baby comes out if it's a boy you keep it if it's a girl expose it cast her out so these are things that are really happening back then, things that actually happened, and just the way he said it so nonchalantly. But you could be picked up and become a slave, grow up, into, grow up into slavery. Or you could be born into a family of slaves. Apparently it was not difficult to become a slave because there were up to 300,000 slaves in Rome between 140 to 70 B.C., Tons of slaves. It wasn't hard to become a slave. If you wanted to become a slave, you could do it. This is a little picture of what was happening in Paul's day. That's how you became a slave. What were the conditions of a slave? And again, this is a very complex system back then, very complex. Some people didn't have it too bad. It all depended on the treatment of your owners. A rich man's slave could have been better off than just a regular you know, free poor man. So it all depends on the treatment of your owner, your master. Or you can have the opposite side. There was one wife of a slave owner that said, Slaves are not even people. And she said, He needs to be crucified, sent off to crucifixion, just at her own whim. And this is what she said. This is a quote from back then. She said, This I will, such I command. May my will prevail over reason. Crucify him. These are the kind of things that were happening to slaves. Again, it was complex. Some had it good. Some didn't have it so good. Some were castrated. Some were used for prostitution. Very complex. And it was an evil system. The condition of a slave also depended on the slave's own attitude. If he worked hard, things might have gotten better for him. It all, again, it all depends. It was a complex system back then. The laws and customs... Regulating master-slave relations, that also depended determined the condition of the slave. By the end of the first century, you know, toward the end, after the New, when the New Testament was wrapping up, there were some positive political changes that were happening. Some things that were happening and that were in favor of slaves. But up to that point, it was pretty cruel. Regardless, and if you would allow me to read this quote, this is from a gentleman named Epictetus. He was a philosopher just after the death of Paul in that, in that area. Okay, so he was writing discourses at the time in Greek. And this is what he said. And it's also believed that Epictetus was a former slave himself who had been freed. But listen to what he says about, about slaves. Again, this is 1st century, 2nd century stuff here I'm reading. The slave is anxious to be set free at once. So no matter what his conditions were, he wanted to be set free. That's what he wanted. That was his goal. Why? Do you think it is because he is anxious to pay the tax on his manumission or his release? No. The reason is he imagines that up till now he is hampered and ill at ease because he has not got his freedom. Understandable. So he thinks to himself, If I am enfranchised, at once all will be well. I heed nobody. I talk to all men as an equal and one of their equal and one of their quality. I go where I will, I come whence I will, and where I will. Then he's set free or he's emancipated and having nothing to eat. He straightway looks for something, someone to flatter and to dine with. This is what happens after he's freed. Then he either has to sell his body to lust and endure the worst, and if he gets a manger to eat at or a feeding trough, he is plunged into a slavery much severer than his first slavery. Or if perchance he grows rich, being a lowbred fellow, he dotes on some poucher girl and gets miserable and bewails himself and longs to be a slave again. This is a former slave back in the first and second century writing this right now. In other words, was it easy for slaves? Did they have many rights? They were completely bound to their owner. Completely bound to their owner. How were slaves punished? They were beaten with whips, goads, and sticks. Sometimes they were permanently crippled, which it wasn't really advantageous to cripple your slave back then because they were expensive, but they could be killed. There was a slave war that broke out, 71 B.C., where 6,000 slaves were crucified. That's one reason why we call Christ's crucifixion the crucifixion of a criminal, right? That he would stoop down to that level and die the way that slaves and criminals have died. He had to die that kind of death because what? We're criminals, We're criminals against his law, and that's how he had to die for us. But that's how slaves were sometimes killed. A runaway slave could at least expect a beating when he got back. If not, mutilation or death, if he had run away and been captured and sent back. Sometimes harboring a runaway slave could be considered a crime. Again, what's the picture of slavery? Not good. What's the New Testament's attitude towards slavery? What's, how does the New Testament view slavery? You might not like this either. Does the New Testament try to abolish slavery? It doesn't. Many of you have your MacArthur Study Bible in your lap, and you could see what he says right there. I'll read it for you. He says, The New Testament nowhere directly attacks slavery had it done so, the resulting slave insurrections would have been brutally suppressed and the message of the gospel hopelessly confused with that of social reform. So, had the Christians tried to liberate slaves, they might have gotten out for a little bit, but the Roman government was so powerful, they would have been beaten down. They wouldn't have gotten anywhere and they think, well, these Christians only care about social reform and the gospel would have been obscured. That's what MacArthur's saying there. Does that make sense? Instead, and this is the positive side, this is what you have to latch onto in terms of what the New Testament teaches about literal slavery. Instead, Christianity undermined the evils of slavery by changing the hearts of slaves and masters. So by stressing that spiritual equality of master and slave, in that sense, the Bible worked toward getting rid of slavery. So you have Colossians 4, where Paul says, Masters, treat your slaves the right way. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Is he telling them... to? even to let them go at that point. No, he's saying, you guys are in a sad situation, I know, but we're going to do this in a way that's faithful to the gospel. That's the point, because there was no expectation at the time with so many slaves to actually abolish that politically. Besides, what's Paul going to do in prison anyway to abolish politically the entity of slavery? He's not going to be able to do that. So that's the point. Does that make sense? The New Testament is working, in other words, internally through the hearts of believers to change those relationships. That's what he's doing. And that's what we have to do too in our relations with other people. We have to work at the heart. Bring the gospel to bear on the heart of the issue and work internally. So backing out now, those are some lessons that we've learned from Philemon's character, Paul's prayer. Now what's the rhetorical punch of everything that Paul just said? How could this make Paul's case for Philemon to forgive someone more powerful? How could this make paul's case more persuasive that's the question one preacher said it this way he said this is not flattery he's not flattering philemon it's strictly gospel encouragement saying i know what christ has done in your life i've seen it and i've thanked him for it you have love for the saints you have true biblical fellowship you have faith in christ therefore i can appeal to you to forgive somebody he's building his case that way it's very powerful He's appealing to Philemon to forgive because of what Christ has done in him already. This is what makes Paul's point so powerful. So just as we wrap up, Philemon, here he is. He's surrounded by a great church. He has the prayers and commendation of Paul. But he has one thing that needs to be confronted. He needs to forgive. He needs to forgive someone who he had full, from human standpoint, full, full rights to be angry with and do whatever he wanted with. And from a legal standpoint, he had full rights to do whatever he wanted with. But Paul is saying, I want you to take a different path. And this is what he's going to confront him on, appeal to him on, the next time we get together. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons that we learned from it. I pray, Father, that we would take heed to your word, take heed to the ministries that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to apply these things. I pray you'd help us to think through difficult topics in the Bible as well, things that we might understand at first, things that don't seem to go in line with the way things are happening in our day and age. I pray that we would seek to understand them according to a biblical lens and see it through a biblical lens. And I pray so in Christ's name. Amen.